Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the Leawood campus of Christ Community. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, we're really glad you're here on this day. We hope you sense the presence of Christ here and the fragrance of Christ. We are very glad you are here. Did you have a good Valentine's Day? Uh, Guys, did you uh, stand up, do the right thing? Um, Well, Valentine's Day is always fun for me and uh, actually Liz and I had... uh, a delightful Valentine's Day, so 31 years. I think Liz is in this service. I thank you, sweetie, for great, a great Valentine's Day and a wonderful life together. So it's a special week. And also, it's a great hockey game, right? I mean, I'm a Minnesota kid, and uh, I mean, all across the world, it's USA. Go USA. So it's a fun week. Well, Valentine's Day brings uh, memories to all of us. And uh, I often think of the story of a guy who was going to take his bride of 45 years out to Valentine's Day dinner. And as she was getting ready, he uh, snuck his, you know, head inside the door and said, uh, Honey, do you hear me? No response. So he thinks, well, so, uh, so he makes his way into the middle of the room, getting a little closer. He says, Honey, do you hear me? Dead silence. Finally, he gets up right next to her, <laughs> right on her back. He says, Honey, do you hear me? which she turns around with a look of exasperation. She says, uh, Henry, for the third time, I hear you. (laughs) See, not hearing well can be an annoyance, right? It can be an embarrassment. It can be more than just a senior moment. Goodness, all of us wrestle with that. But not hearing well can also be perilous. It's one thing, and all of us have had this experience, I think, to uh, miss our alarm, not hear it go off in the morning and miss an appointment. But as it is often said, it's quite another thing to uh, not hear a train whistle and uh, arrive early at the pearly gates. Uh, Listening well matters. It matters a great deal. And I find in Christian circles, we often talk about loose tongues but we seldom talk about lethargic ears. And as a kid, I had a lot of issues. Uh, One of the things I had an issue with was was talking a lot and saying a lot of bad things. My mom used to address my potty mouth in many ways. And uh, she would always say to me, and she did this as long as she lived. She's now with the Lord. She said, Tommy, she always called me Tommy. Tommy, don't forget, God gave you one mouth, And two ears for a reason. He wants you to use your ears more than your mouth. This is good advice, even from mom. Because in the 24-7 nanosecond world, perhaps listening well is more important than ever. Wouldn't you say? I mean, we're bombarded with messages unbelievable in the history of humanity. Distractions galore. And learning to listen well is really important, whether it's our teachers at school, kids, whether it's our parents at home, or our boss at work, or guys, particularly when your spouse asks you about your day and they ask you about their day, you listen well, right? It seems to me there's a really important truth for all of us this morning to grasp, and that is to live well we must listen well. 
As a pastor, I often see the damaging consequences to relationships when we don't listen well. Relationships with those we love, with others in our workplace. But I also see the damage when we don't listen well to our relationship with God. And transparently, I think it's very easy for all of us to come to church, and if we come to church week after week, to become lazy listeners. It's to sort of drift off during Sunday morning service to the sermon and simply tune out. But as we will see in this morning's message, this text, lazy listening is not an inconsequential matter. For if we don't listen up, the text will remind us we will not grow up. So if you brought your Bible in paper or electronic form, I'd like you to scoot there with me if you haven't already to Hebrews chapter 5. And if you're visiting this morning, again, I want to welcome you. And uh, if you haven't been a part of our series, we've been walking through this brilliant book called the New Testament book of Hebrews. Now, I'd like to have us all recall that this book, written by an author we do not know who it is, has a brilliant mind, amazing artistry in its classical Greek, and he has a pastoral heart. So you have this beautiful combination of brilliant literary artistry and a tender pastor's heart. Most likely, the literary genre or genre of this particular book is a sermon. It looks like a sermon, feels like a sermon, is a sermon, and then it was a circulating letter. It was a darn good sermon. So they circulated it. And you will notice throughout the book, whether you are here for the first time, you've been part of this and walked through this wonderful book with us this year, is that the pastor who's preaching this sermon will focus on Jesus being true and better all the way through the book. But through his pastoral heart, you will notice throughout the book, and we've noticed several already, that his loving warning, his concern for the authenticity and vitality of the congregation's faith will begin to bubble up to the literary surface throughout this book. Chapter 2, we saw it first. The peril of spiritual drifting. And in chapter 3, we encountered the dangerous peril of a hardened heart. So chapters 5 and 6, we are now warned of the dangerous peril of lazy listening. Now, sometimes the chapter divisions, which were not in the original papyrus or the original script, kind of throw us off. But really, chapter 5, 11, through 6, 12 is one unit. And what I want you to imagine with me is that what this seems to be in the midst of this sermon is a pastoral timeout, right in the midst of the sermon. I think of your favorite basketball team or some team where the coach calls a timeout in the middle of the game when things aren't really going as well as he'd hoped. So the picture here is a spirited pep talk in a quick timeout in the middle of the sermon. Preacher, a pastor, a coach, wants to remind his players of two things, two exhortations. The first is he wants them to know, he wants us to know, hey guys, hey girls, listen up. And then secondly, he wants us to know to grow up. So 5, 11 through 14, if you're following along or the scaffolding of your mind or notes, is to listen up. The second exhortation, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, is to grow up. So let's dive in. Listen up. In verses 11 through 14, we hear these words, and I want to read them again and press into them just a bit. About this, and what is the this in context, is the true and better Jesus in his high priestly role in the gospel. About this, he says, we have much to say. 
And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For through, or, or for though by this time, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child or literally an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, notice, trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. Now, if we want to understand this text, we need to understand its literary arrangement. The text is arranged around a word borrowed from classical Greek that is never used in the New Testament apart from this, uh, by this writer. It's only used two times in the New Testament. It is here in verse 11, chapter 5, and bookended, a literary bookend in verse 12 of chapter 6. So this brilliant writer gathers his uh, language from classical Greek, inserts it in Koine Greek, and it is this idea of dullness of hearing. That's the phrase. Do you see it? The word dullness particularly frames this whole text. If we miss this, we miss the text. In chapter uh, 6, verse 12, it is translated sluggish, same word. And here it is, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 5, it is translated dullness or dullness of hearing. Throughout the Greek language, this idea is often used in classical Greek of a careless and lazy worker. So the imagery is brought together of the word hearing and dullness to make a point that sets the phrase Uh, that establishes the phrase's meaning, and that is this, that lazy listening and lazy living will go hand in hand. Now, you'll notice the imagery of spiritual stagnation or atrophy um, or a stunted growth. That's the idea. And he presses into this saying that lazy listening leads to lazy learning in verses 12 uh, and 13 through 14. He says, lazy listening will make you a spiritual toddler. You see that verse is a spiritual teacher. You should be a teacher by now, but you're really a toddler. And what is amazing is this writer or this preacher paints a very pathetic and yucky picture of what it means to be a spiritual infant. He makes the case of eating baby food as an adult. Now that ought to make you go gross. When our two children were small, uh, Schaefer and Sarah, one of my duties uh, often around the uh, dinner time when I came home from the office was to feed my kids dinner. That wasn't a fun experience for me, I'm just telling you. I mean, they're so cute, and I love Schaefer and Sarah, but they'd sit in their high chair, right? This chair with this, you know, a bib supposedly, uh, and I would feed them. I mean, just picture that I would feed them the most gross stuff. I mean, pablum green crushed slimy peas. Yuck. Mashed grungy carrots. Gross slimy applesauce. I didn't want to eat dinner after that. My task was to stick more in their mouth than came out. And most of the time, I mean, transparently, there was more slimy food on their face and their hands and on me than in their mouth. And our little stinker, Sarah, she's a wonderful, beautiful young woman now, but she was a stinker at the table. 
And she had this game. And I'm convinced it's part of the fall into sin. It's, it's, it's one of the early... If you wonder if your kids are sinful, one of the earliest indications is what they do with their pablum and their baby food. Because I could stick it in there, she would spit it out with joy and glee. Like there. And I'm convinced, it's not in the Bible, but it's kind of in my own paraphrase, is that Cain and Abel, that was the first sign, was a food fight of their sin. I didn't like that stage. I didn't like feeding them that stuff. And one of the days, it was like parental heaven for Liz and me. When Schaefer and Sarah sat at the table like normal human beings and ate normal food. Because baby food is just for babies. That's the idea. And if it's not for babies, it's yuck. That's the viscera that this writer wants us to feel. Yuck. And he's saying lazy listening leads to being a spiritual infant. Because they hadn't listened up, they hadn't grown up. And in verses 11 to 14, I describe it as pablum faith. Pablum faith may be well-meaning. It's often very sincere. It's often even cute. But it's glaringly immature. Pablum faith is easily blown by the latest cultural winds, faddish spiritual conversations, or, quote, progressive doctrine. And notice where he goes in the text. Because of their spiritual maturity, notice one of the indications is they didn't have the capacity for spiritual discernment. Not only does pablum faith hinder our spiritual formation, it makes us vulnerable to spiritual error, to false teachers that will tickle our ears and lead us astray. So how are we listening to God's Word? How are we listening when we read it and when we hear it taught? I want to suggest for our consideration this morning, there are really three kinds of faulty listening that lead to pablum kind of faith. The first one is careless listening. You may be here this morning. I'm glad you are. But you may be listening carelessly. Ah, you know some of the basic truths of the Christian faith. But if you're honest, most of the time in a sermon or a message, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Maybe church is something you've done all your life. Maybe church is a place where you see your friends. Again, that's a good thing. Maybe it's good for business contacts. But careless listening, you can be assured, I can be assured in my life, that it leads to pablum faith. And a pablum faith will never set your soul or my soul soaring. Just like baby food won't send your taste buds soaring. Careless listening is a grave danger for us, all of us. But the second dangerous listening is distracted listening. You may be here this morning and are a distracted listener. Your life and world is so busy. There's so much background noise. There's so much spiritual static. You try to read your Bible. You try to listen to a sermon. Your mind and your heart are so cluttered with thoughts about work, about assignments at school with your teacher, about your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or your plans for the rest of today. You sort of hear the words spoken, but they're not registering. Somebody used to tell me when I sort of did this, it's like, uh, the light's on, but no one's home. You may be focused today on your smartphone, texting, writing a to-do list, either literally or figuratively in your mind. 
during a sermon or a worship service. This past week, one of my good friends has been a friend for years and years and years. When Earth's crust hardened, I think we met. His name is Mike Metzger, and he has a blog, and this particular blog I thought was extraordinarily insightful. It's called Doggy Head Tilt, this is his blog. And he talks about Me Too people in an over-sensory world. Overload. He says, Me Too people often, rather than listen and engage in meaningful relationships, often have a reflective response to what you say, Me Too. When you mention something in your life, you know, like your work or your kids or a recent trip, their response is basically a superficial, me too. And Mike's point is really powerful that many of us, rather than listen well and engage in meaningful conversations with others, simply superficially reflect back, me too. And he says, true listening is cultivated in the formative spiritual disciplines of solitude and silence. And he concludes in his blog these words. He says, hearing is taking it all in. Listening is taking seriously what ought to be taken seriously. And he says, if you are unskilled at listening, you risk being a me too person. Distracted me too listening inevitably, invariably leads to a superficial, unsatisfying life. A surface relationship with others and with God and a pablum faith. Careless listening is perilous to you and me. So is distracted listening. But the third one perhaps is one of my greatest struggles and perhaps yours, and that's selective listening. Selective listening is picking and choosing what we want to hear from God's word. I never thought I was a real big selective listener until I got married. Some of you are married or getting married. Just if you're if you're younger, it's gonna happen, okay? If you get married. I'll never forget early on, let's say, you gotta listen better. Because I sort of pick and choose what I wanted to hear. Selective listening will inevitably mean what? Failure to communicate. It creates misunderstanding, and most perilous, it keeps us from getting the whole story. You may be here this morning, and you have developed a very bad habit of selective listening to God's holy and errant word. You may hear passages of Scripture that speak about how much God loves you, and that's good. But you may be filtering out passages of Scripture that speak about the depth of your sinful heart and mine. You may hear passages of Scripture that speak about God's mercy and grace, and that's so important. You are quick to dismiss passages of Scripture that call for sacrifice and obedience. You may hear passages of Scripture about the joy of eternal destiny, of, of an eternal heaven and the new heavens and new earth, but you may be just shutting out the, all the passages that speak of the horror of eternal destiny in hell. You may hear passages of Scripture that speak so boldly about social justice but you may be filtering out passages of Scripture that call for sexual purity. Hearing only what we want to hear, picking and choosing like we are at, you pick two at Panera's. About what the Bible says, 
ignoring or dismissing what we don't like will inevitably lead us to an immature pablum faith at best and a false spirituality at worst. The writer of Hebrews has already made very plain, very plain and clear in chapter 2, verse 1, that sets the whole trajectory of the book, that if we don't pay close attention to what we hear, if we don't listen well, we will drift spiritually. So what kind of listener are you? Young person, student, older person, mature? Are you listening to God's word carelessly? Are you listening to it distractingly? Or selectively. What the writer of Hebrews wants us to grasp is there is a big downside for all of us not to listening up. And if we don't listen up, we don't grow up. So this pastoral coach takes this break in the sermon. He has his men and women in the, in the huddle. He says to them, listen up. Now he says, before you go back out, grow up. Grow up. That's his second exhortation. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6, he tells us to grow up. And let me just say, it is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament, let alone Hebrews, to interpret. And let me say very importantly that pastors who teach God's Word are not about giving their opinion, but about teaching what the original writer said in the original language with proper grammar and proper syntax, the best we understand. There are many views and interpretations that abound in this text. I'm just saying it's one of the most challenging interpretive texts for any teacher or scholar or pastor. Whatever interpretive roadmap we follow, all of us here today, wherever we are in our faith, if we're checking out Christianity, whether we're newer in the faith, whether we've been around the church all our life, wherever we are, we need to see that along this path of this text, however we interpret it, there are signs of sober warning. In verse 1, the writer urges us to move beyond a pablum kind of faith and press on to a mature, vital faith. And he gives us what I think, as a pastoral coach, three spiritual reminders for us to keep growing or to grow in our faith. The first one is in verses 2 and 3. Now remember, these converts are from Judaism. They're Jewish Christians. So in verse 2 and 3, he gives them and reminds them of the basics. These are the ABCs of Judaism. And you'll notice he mentions ceremonial washings. That's michvaot, which is the, the, uh, what you washed before you went to the temple to worship or a synagogue. Priestly ceremony laying on hands. And notice the doctrines of human destiny, of resurrection and judgment. These were foundational beliefs. So the writer of Hebrew who presents the true and better Jesus is in line with Jesus. Remember Jesus said in the Gospels, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it. So there's an affirmation of that foundation. And he says, build on the basics. Now, secondly, don't fake it. Don't fake being a true Christian. Now, notice verses 4 through 8. And as I said earlier, this is a very challenging text to interpret. How you interpret it, how I interpret it, obviously there's a lot of freedom here, but let me give you my best shot. The inspired Hebrew author is using very high literary artistry. You see this in the Greek text, much more than English. There is a mode of language. It is brilliantly laid out like poetry. It might jab at the edge of hyperbole, but the language is powerful and compelling. It's designed that way. 
It's huddle language. Notice the phrases, impossible to restore again, fall away, having once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Wow. Who is the author describing here? Let me suggest briefly, and you might want to take notes on this, and study this more. There are three main orthodox interpretations of this text. Where Christians of sound doctrine and orthodoxy see, see this primarily three ways. First, the first interpretation is this. Some believe this is a description of true believers that have fallen away and rejected or denied their faith. In other words, they're not Christians anymore. Second interpretation is others believe this is a description of true believers, but they have backslidden. If you're a Baptist, that's a common word. Uh, But you're not growing. You're still Christians. You're not very fruitful. You sort of get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, um, but you're a Christian. You're not fruitful. You never grow up, but you're still in heaven. The third view is which the view I hold to, and that is this, that This is a description of non-believers who truly do not have salvation in Christ. They are very good and kind people, sincere, who are often part of the church. Sometimes they're in the church every time the door opens. And outwardly, they look like the real thing, but inwardly, they are not true Christians. They are immersed in the local church, and the language here seems to suggest this to me. They are surrounded by believers. They participate in the church. They engaged in the Lord's communion. They maybe have gone through baptism. They've seen the Holy Spirit do impressive things in the congregation, but they are not converted. I think the Hebrew writer has in mind the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Let me highlight those for you in verses 21 through 23 for your consideration. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, now again, there's a connection here because the writer of Hebrews will talk about the end time, the end day, the telos, the ending. And Jesus is focusing on the end of time. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, speak God's word. Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works or signs and wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Wow. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is describing here fakers of faith who have a false sense of security. And in vivid contrast, Jesus describes those who have true security that are truly his. This is found in John 10, 27 through 28. Let me highlight that just briefly to show you the contrast of Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now notice he says it again. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The security of true salvation for the believer is reinforced by Jesus. It's also reinforced in Hebrews chapter 6, I believe. For example, the corollary metaphor of drifting and anchoring now emerges in 6.12, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a picture of security and tethering. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, 
Paul says to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. So again, there are many interpretations, three orthodox ones, and how you interpret it is up for you to decide. I'm giving you my best shot. You don't have to believe in areas of non-essential doctrine exactly like I do. That's one of the great joys of our denomination and freedom we have. But however you interpret this, this is a warning text. It's a sober text for everyone. It asks us some very key questions to take personal spiritual inventory. What I believe this text is teaching, it is pointing to what I would call not a pablum faith at this section, but a perilous plastic kind of faith. If you look at your English dictionary, one of the earliest meanings of plasticity is fakeness, hypocrisy, synthetic. Have you ever had the experience of being faked out by a fake? I mean, have you ever had the experience? I've had it. I hope I'm not the only one. I'm so embarrassed. I'll be at a nice restaurant. I think, these are real flowers. So I go, they're silk. But the worst one, this is true confession time. I'm still traumatized by this. In an early stage of my development, I was about seven years old. Our family went to my aunt's house for Sunday dinner. And I was hungry. And on her kitchen table was this basket of fruit. (laughs) Red, perfect apple. I was so hungry, red, delicious, I could just taste it as it would just explode it in my mouth. So I grab it. I am ready to bite into that thing. And she says, that's not real. That was a decorative apple. Now, maybe you haven't bitten into one, but I know you've been close. Because I have. Something can look so much like the real thing that is fake. Plastic faith is like, it's like that. Plastic faith, faith leads to plastic fruit. It will never produce good fruit. Notice the metaphor in verses 7 and 8 about fruitfulness. Do you see it? So maybe you're here this morning, and this kind of faith describes you, if you're honest. Maybe you've heard the gospel message, that Christ has died for you, there's nothing you can do to earn it. His shed atoning blood has been offered to you, and you can receive it, find forgiveness and new life. But you've never responded in repentance and faith to the gospel. You've been going through the religious motions. You know a lot of the Christian words. But when you are honest before God, the disordered affections of your heart, the misguided priorities of your life speak quietly to you that Christ is not part of you. I'm not saying for the faint-hearted faith, someone who's wrestling or struggling, but you know. In your heart, you've been faking it. The good news is that a fake faith can become a real faith when we embrace the gospel. So the writer of Hebrews, in this huddle timeout, gives us the exhortation to grow. Keep growing. Grow up. Grow. He says, basics matter. Don't fake your Christian. And then lastly, notice before he sends them out to play the game, 
Third exhortation to grow is step it up. Step it up. Don't be indifferent. Look at me at verses 9 through 12. I love how he turns the corner here because this is a sober text, isn't it? He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Notice this word beloved is a tender word. It's the only time he uses it in all the book. He wants them to know he loves them and believes in them. We feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's the end of time. So that you may not be, and here's the same Greek word that is translated differently here in the context, so that you may not be, not dull, but sluggish. If you follow this word, you know that it's also used a couple of places in ancient Greek for a lion who's sick and his limbs are weak. And this is what the writer is pulling up. It is a weak, sluggish kind of couch potato faith. But he says, but imitators of those who do faith and patience inherit the promises. He says to his readers, the pastoral coach says in the huddle before they go out, guys and gals, let's pick up the game. Through the eyes of faith, let's keep growing in our faith. Let's keep our eyes on the big prize. It's the inheritance of the promise that we're going to look at next week. What good news of the gospel promises us not only now, notice how it's embedded in the great virtues now of a new life of faith, hope, and love. Do you see faith, hope, and love in the text? But also at the end of the day, there is so much for everyone to gain. There is so much that waits for us. A future inheritance hidden in the true and better Jesus that is unimaginably immense and awesome and beautiful. Life with our Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and new earth. He says a great prize prize awaits for you at the end of the game. How many of you watched the Super Bowl, right? A lot of us did. It wasn't a really great game. Well, I I guess if you were a Denver Bronco fan, which I don't think anybody could be that here, right? But the game was, I mean, they just put a hurt. Seattle Seahawks put a hurt on the Broncos. Big time. But what I love about those games is the celebration afterwards. You remember the biggest grin on the MVP's face, Malcolm Smith, when he held up the Vince Lombardi trophy. Do you remember that? And there was all this excitement, and he gets his brand new car, and he's going to spend with his family or whoever a whole week at Disney World. How awesome is that? The writer of the Hebrews is saying, prize. It's not just a new car, it's a new body in the heavens and the new earth. It's a new home forever. It's not just a week at Disney World, it's the life we were designed to live in the new heavens and earth forever with Jesus. But it comes at the end of the game. So he says, get after it. The prize is worth it. Get off the couch. He's describing the danger of a couch potato faith. Spiritually flabby, a lack of spiritual fitness and discipline. And a flabby faith will not grow and mature and be vital. It doesn't have the strength to withstand temptations that greet us. It doesn't have the strength to lead others, to disciple others, to be redemptive in other people's lives because 
That faith is so flabby, so out of shape. And Paul says to Timothy, and pastors can fall into this like anyone else, we can have a couch potato flabby faith. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he uses the word of the gym, discipline, gymnasio, discipline yourself, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Not one of us, whether we are young or old, whether we're a pastor or not, or whoever we are, not one of us ever outgrow the need to be disciplined in our faith. We never grow out of being in training as a yoked apprentice of Jesus. To grow up, we must listen up. See, grace is opposed to merit. None of us can merit anything before a holy God. Jesus has done that for us, but it's not opposed to effort because grace understood properly leads to grace-empowered and directed discipline. The writer of Hebrews will build this theme of discipline through the rest of the book. I want you to watch for it. So let me raise three questions of loving concern for you and me as a pastor. Three questions. First, do you have a plastic faith Are you faking it? Tom Nelson is not saying this. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. If you are faking it, you are not making it. And the good news, it's not too late to move from a fake faith to an authentic faith to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior who died on the cross, who shed his blood for you and offers you as a free gift of grace the life you long to live, the life you are designed to live, the life you will one day live with him forever. Do you have a plastic faith? Are you faking it? And will you embrace Christ? Secondly, do you have a pablum faith? Maybe you're here this morning. You know you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that's awesome. But you know your spiritual growth is stagnated. The Holy Spirit is nudging your heart to take some steps of discipline that will help you grow and have more vital faith. It may be the step of being more serious about church attendance, of arriving on time, preparing your hearts to worship, having your ears ready to hear God's word taught. It may be getting involved in a community group. It may be learning the steps of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It may be seeking out a spiritual mentor you trust and becoming more consistent in your Bible reading, prayer, fasting, solitude, and service. Lastly, do you have a couch potato faith? Maybe you've been in church a long time. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time. But you're stuck. Spiritual lethargy, indifference, dryness. I mean, dryness can come from many things. But sometimes it's because we're on the couch with Jesus. Doing nothing to deepen our faith. Spiritual disciplines you once had, that you kept as an act of grace, as an act of love, not legalism. You've let slip out. And some of us here this morning would never miss a a physical workout. And physical workouts are important. But many of us are missing our spiritual workout and the spiritual exercises and disciplines as a way of life. It's a rhythm of grace. See, the greatest danger for many of us is not just bold disobedience. It is soul-suffocating comfort and apathy and indifference. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you never, I never, outgrow the need to be yoked with Jesus and to learn from him a disciplined life for his glory. 
So maybe this morning, it's time for you to repent of your indiscipline, your passionless spiritual lethargy, and get back on track with your spiritual training. Friends, listening matters. Listening matters more than we realize. Brilliant Jesus said it often after he taught his followers, his listeners. He said this word, and if you look at the Gospels, he repeats it over and over again. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To live well, we must listen well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text is a difficult one. It's not always a feel-good one, but your grace feels good when we see it in it. Holy Spirit, speak to each person. Take your holy word and allow us in your loving caresses and your goodness and your truth and mercy to do spiritual inventory this morning. Lord, you are all to, all to us. You are all to us. 